Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Caitlin Sutton from Texas Children's. Dr. Sutton is the head of maternal fetal anesthesia at Texas Children's, where she's an anesthesiologist in the fetal center there. And she's an assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine in anesthesiology. And we are going to talk about anesthesia for fetal surgery, something that I am amazed in the six or seven years that I've been doing this, we have never done. And so I heard just an amazing talk that Dr. Sutton gave on this and said, we have to have her on the show. And I'm thrilled to have her here. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Oh, gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really excited. I was so delighted to, to get the invitation and to talk about something that I'm I'm super excited about, too. Well, fabulous. Tell us a little bit about you and your career and kind of how you got to the point where you are doing what you do. Yeah, so um, great question. Kind of a, a series of, of um, surprises and and you know tur- left turns and right turns that are unexpected, similar to to most people, I suppose. Um, I I did med school here in in Houston at at Baylor, and I I never thought I would do anesthesia, and then I did my first day of an anesthesia rotation, and I loved it. Um, and then I did my anesthesia residency at Emory um, in in Atlanta. Um, I really liked all of my rotations, um, but I loved OB. Um, and then I got to Pete's and I loved Pete's. And so I couldn't decide what to do. Um, and I, it, at the time I thought, you know, a lot of people who do OB anesthesia do OB for maybe 20% of their time and the rest of the time they do adults. And so maybe I'll just invent that I'll do OB for 20% of my time. And the rest of the time I'll do Pete's. I wasn't thinking about fetal at all. I'd never even seen a fetal surgery. Um, I knew that they existed because our, our embryology professor in, in med school was a fetal surgeon. So I had heard that it existed, but that was the extent of my awareness. And when I went to do my OB anesthesia fellowship in California, um, actually the team from Texas Children's came to Stanford to do some, some fetal surgeries with us. And, and I um, knew at the time I was going to end up at Texas Children's for my peds fellowship. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll jump in in that. And it also obviously has some overlap with peds and, and OB. Um, and I loved the team and I loved the cases. Um, and when I came to do my peds fellowship here at Texas Children's, um, I expressed interest in, in joining of the, the team, but that was definitely um, not what I what I set out to do. I just really liked OB and, and really liked peds. And, and in the end, I, I it turns out I really love fetal. Well, it's so fun when you stumble on something unintended, but that ends up being something you really love. So when you think about... Um, the different kinds of procedures that of fetal surgery procedures that we do anesthesia for, you know, are there common ones that, and, and, you know, people may not have any idea um, of this and some may be more familiar, but if just the kind of basic general um, common ones that we do, what, what would you say? Yeah. So that's a great question. It's, it's, it's really evolved and this is a new, a new field, right? So in the last 30, 40 years, um, this is, this is really come into existence. And so originally people just described fetal surgeries in kind of three buckets. They talked about minimally invasive, um, which would be things that are either ultrasound guided needle based procedures, like maybe placing a shunt if a, if a fetus had um, a pleural effusion to direct that fluid into the amniotic um, space, or um, maybe sometimes a very small fetoscope. So for example, um, twins that share a placenta might get something called twin twin transfusion syndrome and if you uh, laser use a a laser um, to um, kind of cauterize those abnormal vascular connections you can have a much better outcome for babies with severe twin twin transfusion so those are 
really minimally invasive, just like a small incision or a needle-based procedure. Um, so that's one bucket. Another bucket was open kind of mid-gestation procedures. The, the biggest, most typical one that we think of is often spina bifida repair or, or myelomeningocele repair, um, where you would around 24 to 26 weeks or so gestation go in, um, do this surgery, and then put the baby back in and aim to continue that pregnancy for a few more months. Um, and then the third bucket of these, this kind of original category system was an exit procedure, which is like a modified C-section um, for a fetus that's not expected to survive that transition from fetal to neonatal life without some sort of either morbidity or mortality. The kind of prototypical one that we think of is a big airway um, problem, a big neck mass that would prevent the baby from being able to breathe. And so you, what, what you do in those cases is you start a, a C-section but you really relax the uterus so that the placenta doesn't separate and the baby continues on that placental support with oxygenation um, from, from the placenta. You deliver um, usually the head and shoulders um, of the fetus and then do whatever intervention you're going to do while they're still kind of on bypass, if you will. Um, and then once you're done with that, complete the C-section, deliver the baby, um, stop relaxing the uterus, try and get as much tone back as you can. So those were the three original buckets, the minimally invasive, the um, open mid-gestation, and then the exit procedures. But really, it's gotten um, more gray, um, a little bit more um, muddled, because now we're doing a lot of mid-gestation procedures that are bigger procedures like the MMC repairs, um, the spina bifida repairs, but we're doing them fetoscopically. And so there would fall a little bit under the minimally invasive, but they're a bigger surgery. And so everything's getting a little bit more muddled these days as we're having more indications and then less invasive approaches. So those three buckets don't really fit anymore, but that's kind of how we think about the them in general. Right. And still a good way to kind of just at least think about them in terms of what we can do. So it seems to me that something like an exit procedure for an airway or a neck mass, right? I mean, if everything else is normal and you can do this successfully, I mean, that that could be the difference between a baby who would have died if they had been delivered normal uh, without this procedure and now is going to live a completely normal life and be fine. That yeah. seems like the extreme good outcome. Are there, you know, m the outcomes must be different based on what the procedure is, right? So I would imagine that, um, for example, some of the procedures where you might for um, uh, pulmonary atresia, if you're putting in a, a, and I may be mixing up the indications and the, and the procedures, but putting in a tracheal plug or, you know, the, these various things that might happen mid-gestation, um, the outcomes are probably different. But do we know that the fetal surgeries that are getting done improve outcomes in general? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and and those are those are good examples, right? Like we think about if it's an isolated problem, um, like an airway problem in an exit, um, versus something like a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, where we where we plug the trachea um, with the with the goal of improving that lung development. For sure, the individual um, case is going to be impacted based on if it's an isolated lesion. Um, but one of the things that we have to really think about every time that we think of a new indication or even an individual case is, does the benefit of the outcome for the fetus and, and the, subsequently the baby justify the risk that we're going to expose the pregnant patient to? And so we we are compelled, we are obligated to say we must confirm that there is an improved outcome for the baby to 
justify even offering this procedure to to a pregnant patient um, because the the pregnant patient is undergoing physical risk from the anesthetic from the surgery um, without any direct physiologic benefit, right, in most cases. And and so when we look at, um, for example, a new indication, we're now looking at um, gastroschisis or um, repairs. Does we What we have to do in research is show in animal models and then in humans um, that this that this intervention, this surgery that we're going to do is as low risk to the mom um, as it can be, and that the benefit warrants that we're actually going to go go in and do it. That means really, really, really careful patient selection. Um, and that involves so much anesthesia input from the beginning for each of these cases. So it's that's kind of a, a satisfying thing and an enjoyable thing from an anesthesia standpoint is that we are really, really involved in the full spectrum of, you know, patient selection, showing up the day of, optimizing, and then the perioperative care um, to make sure that the outcomes are as good as possible for the for the fetus and for for the pregnant patient. Right. Yeah, that it sounds like, I mean, one of the things I love about critical care, I do ICU care, is the thought process and the discussions with family and patients about kind of choices and potential outcomes. And sometimes it's, you know, um, it's the not doing that is the right choice, right? So I, it sounds similar in your field where, you know, you really have to have in-depth discussions with patients about the pros and cons and what might make the most sense. And and that that's interesting ethically, and it is interesting from a patient care standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I've learned so much about it. And, and part of my other my other hat that I wear is um, I'm a, a clinical ethicist. And so one one of the things that I've learned um, so much more clearly in doing fetal is the difference between clinical ethics and research ethics um, and how we we incorporate that shared decision making once something is the standard of care. But before it's the standard of care, when we're still doing research, we really have to be more protective and more thoughtful about how we do our patient selection and, and what we offer. Um, and the ethics of those are, 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 you know, beyond the scope of what we're talking about today, but so interesting for those um, discussions with your colleagues and then with the patients and families. Yeah, absolutely. So this may seem like such a basic or even obvious question, but I think it's probably not. So I'll ask it. Why? Does a fetus need anesthesia? That's a great question. It's it's not um, basic, and and I think by the way, one of the things that I've learned about in in doing anesthesia for fetal surgery is that if you have a question, always ask it because it's never it's it's never a, a bad idea to to clarify in these things. So, a fetus needs anesthesia. For a lot of the same reasons that that we think about all of our patients needing anesthesia, though there are some really important differences. So when I think about how to design an anesthetic, um, right, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do for the mom and what I'm going to do for the fetus. And so just like for the pregnant patient, I'm thinking about, okay, we need amnesia, we need anxiolysis, we need analgesia, we need to optimize the surgical conditions, we need hemodynamic stability, and then I want to minimize side effects. I, you know, design my anesthetic based on those five things, more or less, five or six, however many that was, um, in a fetus, obviously, I don't really think about amnesia. I'm not so worried about that. Um, and when we we are thinking about analgesia, and this is a key difference, in a fetus, a lot of times at the gestational ages that we are doing these procedures, a fetus does not have the structures to process or experience pain in the way that we think about adults. That said, 
they can absolutely experience a stress response. And we can measure that with cortisol, with endorphins. Um, we can actually see how the blood flow in their brain changes in response to stress. And so I'm not thinking about analgesia, but I am thinking about blunting the stress response. And I do that with what we would typically consider analgesics, right? I use fentanyl to, to blunt that stress response. Still want to optimize those surgical conditions. For example, I don't want the fetus to be wiggling around and playing with a laser while they're working on lasering the placenta. So optimizing that. And then hemodynamic stability for the fetus. It's a little trickier, right? Because I don't have a blood pressure. I don't have a pulse ox, but I do have a heart rate. Um, and then often, depending on the procedure, I do have um, fetal echo um, done by a cardiologist. And then again, always want to minimize side effects. So there's some analogous um, goals when I'm thinking about the anesthesia, but really blunting the stress response, optimizing those surgical conditions, maintaining um, hemodynamic stability and doing that all while minimizing side effects are how I kind of organize my anesthetic for the fetus. Right. Really interesting. So as you said, very different than a an adult patient or, or a, a patient who is not a fetus where you mm -hmm. are you know, you have blood pressure, you have, uh, you know, maybe you have abysma, right? You have all these things. So in this case, are you really in the moment, are you basically using heart rate and saying, you know, uh, an increase in, in heart rate is a sign of maybe a stress response, maybe a, a decrease in heart rate is a sign of, of decreased, you know, yeah, perfusion? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the, the kind of downside of that is that changes in the heart rate are a late change, right? So, I am um, far, far, far more particular. Well, I don't want to say far more. I'm, I'm particular about my other anesthetics also. But whereas for some anesthetics, I might say plus or minus 20% of your baseline blood pressure is fine. In this case, I keep it exactly for the, for the mom. I keep the blood pressure exactly the same. I aim to keep the cardiac output the same. Everything needs to be hemodynamically stable as much as possible with as minimal variation because the uterus is not auto-regulated, right? So blood flow will not adjust um, if the mom is just right at the edge of, of not perfusing that, um, the, the placenta and the fetus. So the I use the heart rate for exactly the reasons that you said, but I worry that it's a late sign. So even, you know, tiny changes in the heart rate I will see and I will ad adapt to them um, early. For example, one of the things that we learned, um, my partner actually was one of the first people to, to document this, that we always think about um, maternal temperature impacting fetal heart rate, right? If you have a fever, then you're, you're, the fetus might end up with a, a higher heart rate. Or when patients, you know, are hypothermic because they're in, you know, Minnesota or something and they're stuck in the cold, then you can have um, fetal bradycardia. But we can also see under general anesthesia, where the pregnant patient's temperature regulation is impacted, you can see fetal bradycardia with that. And it's actually a pretty direct relationship. So you have just a 0.1 change in your temperature for the mom can, can be, you know, up to five beats per minute on the fetal heart rate. So those tiny changes in temperature impact the fetus so so um so strongly that could ultimately lead to a delivery of a preterm neonate so we're really really particular um with managing mom because we have such um kind of poor ability to monitor all of the things that we would really want in a fetus yeah so you are monitoring mom how are there standard is it an a-line you mentioned cardiac output do you have a swan or is it echo or you know how are you measuring mom's vitals and and, and adjusting 
Depends on the case. Um, so for something that's minimally invasive, um, like a laser, what, what we're doing in, in those cases is really um, local anesthesia for, for mom's um, analgesia. And then she's under sedation. So she's awake um, in, in those cases. And it's a very, very light sedation um, because I want them to be awake enough that they're calm, that they're relaxed, that they could follow instructions and that they're not, um, you know, going to easily startle. Um, sorry, you can hear the helicopter landing on, on TCH right now. Oh, no worries. I can't hear it, actually. Um, yeah. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, so the... With 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 mom, it depends on the case. So if it's minimally invasive like that, I'm using standard ASA monitors for her, and that's that's really it. We're monitoring the fetus um, because I don't expect that those fetuses who are not having surgical stimulation in that case, we're working on the placenta. There's going to be that much variation. Um, that being said, when we move to something where we're doing a general anesthetic, maybe we're using a, a really deep general anesthetic where we're going to use a higher MAC to be able to relax the uterus, then I'm going to use more um, information for the mom. And it depends on what I'm worried about for her. It, in in olden days, they would use a lot more um, invasive monitoring like a SWAN Um I cannot say that I've ever used a SWAN on a patient for um, a fetal case. We um, will often use an arterial line if we're doing a general, just because I'm not willing to wait that, you know, two to three minutes for the non-invasive blood pressure to know where we are. Um, some people use um, non-invasive cardiac output me measuring like a Vigileo, something like that. Um, and it just, it will depend on what, you're worried about, but we typically don't get more invasive than that as long as you can can keep things pretty pretty stable. Okay. And so are you when you are doing an anesthetic for a fetal surgery, are you providing the anesthesia for the fetus and mom or are there two different teams? So that's a great question. And it, at TCH, it's a little bit um, different than in other places. So at Texas Children's, all of the people in our division of maternal fetal anesthesia are dual trained in obstetric and um, and pediatric anesthesia. So we all have fellowships in both. In other places, that's not necessarily true. So it's a little bit of a different um, setup than, than for us. So... Whereas, for example, a cardiac fetal intervention, we will have two anesthesiologists in the room. We don't necessarily assign you're for mom, you're for baby, because we both can do both. But if something goes wrong with either mom or baby, then we kind of split off and say, okay, you, you manage mom, I'll manage baby, and, and we help each other, but we split off. For a spina bifida repair or a cardiac case that's going well, there are two of us in the room, but we're, we're not clearly delineated as to who's going to do what. For the more minimally invasive things like a straightforward laser um, or where a, an, a shunt placement, something where uh, we don't expect there to be a delivery, we don't expect to need fetal resuscitation, um, then we will usually just have one person in the room um, at our center for that, uh, one, one um, attending anesthesiologist. But it it will depend. So I might do an intrauterine transfusion and the fetus is really, really sick. And that procedure is straightforward, but I expect we might end up needing to do a little bit of resuscitation. In those cases, we have two people, um, not just to help with, you know, taking care of mom and taking care of baby, but also to realize that 
mom is going to be awake if we're doing that resuscitation. And so you want to have one person who's um, clearly dedicated to thinking about the resuscitation and one person who's clearly dedicated not just to taking care of mom from the hemodynamic standpoint, but also to help communicate to her um, what's going on. So it, it depends on the case and depends on the, the acuity, but we, we err on the side of um, if we are concerned about resuscitation or delivery, we definitely will have two separate teams. They just may not be delineated who's going to take care of who until the moment. Sure. Okay. That sounds great. When we think about the agents that you use, you mentioned fentanyl. So mm-hmm. um, tell me a little bit about how you give fentanyl to a fetus. And then um, are there anything, are there other agents that you use for these procedures? Yeah. So we, when you think about what anesthesia a fetus is going to get, they're going to get anesthesia from two different um, ways. So they'll get anything that the mom is getting indirectly because Basically, everything crosses the placenta to some extent, some things more than others, but they'll get indirect anesthesia from there. But we'll also give um, anesthesia directly to the fetus. Um, Like you mentioned, fentanyl, we often use um, a paralytic to prevent movement. Um, We often will use an anticholinergic to support the hemodynamics. So a typical kind of combo medication that we would give would be fentanyl, vecuronium, and atropine. Um, Some centers use rocuronium. Some centers don't use atropine. Um, But that dose altogether um, in a syringe, which we prepare, sterilely give to um, the scrub tech, who then will give it to the surgeon who will basically use a long spinal needle and give it intramuscularly directly to the fetus. Okay, great. Um, so that's one way. And then obviously, what, as you said, whatever you give mom. Now, if you're doing just very light sedation for mom, you're not going to give her a big slug of fentanyl to, to hope it gets to the fetus. So then you would use the intramuscular route. Hey, with us, we'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner With my family, we're having Factor, and my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good, but the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. All right, and we're back. All right, so... Anything, uh, I mean, do you ever use, I guess you can't use, and you don't use propofol or anything like that because you can't give that intramuscularly. So it's really just, as you said, fentanyl plus maybe some things in terms of muscle relaxant or hemodynamics. But for, for the sedation piece, it's really just the fentanyl. For, for the sedation piece. And historically, some people use longer acting things like morphine, et cetera. But um, for, the, for the actual blunting of the stress response, we rely on um, intramuscular fentanyl and then whatever, whatever we're crossing. But I think you highlighted something that's very perceptive of you, um, that we one of the important tenets of fetal anesthesia is that you should administer the medication to the patient 
for whom the effect is intended, right? So if I'm trying to treat the mom, I give the drug to the mom. If I'm trying to treat the fetus, I give the drug to the fetus. I it's it's you're always going to have more side effects if you give the mom a drug that you're trying to get to the fetus. Now, sometimes we have to, sometimes we don't have access. Um, sometimes, you know, a cardiologist might be giving a medication to a mom to treat a fetal heart rate that's happening as an outpatient over time. Um, so sometimes we don't have access to do it directly, but when we can, we try and give that medication directly to the patient that we want to have it. Yeah. Great. So I think we probably, I was going to ask you, and I think we probably already covered most of this, but are there other things we haven't touched on that you really want to keep in mind, either for mom or the fetus? You know, I think um, for the mom, um, like you mentioned, this, so we're, we're thinking about the anesthetic approach. But one of the things that I think is really, really critical and that is in the wheelhouse of the anesthesiologist taking care of the patient is um, beyond just their safety and their physical comfort is their mental health. Right. So we are in a time where mental health um, is one of the top causes of pregnancy-associated mortality in, in our country. And we are in a situation where a, a pregnant patient is experiencing a, com uh, a complication in their pregnancy that's so severe that they need surgery for their fetus, right? So that's overwhelming. If you think about all, all comers, all women who are having, or all all people who are having um, babies, forty over forty percent of people who have babies would describe their birth as traumatic, and that's a normal birth. So then, when you think about these patients who have this complex diagnosis and then have to undergo a physical procedure on themselves, they're at such high risk of trauma. And so one of the things that we really focus on in, in our care of these patients who are awake for, for these procedures and, and awake where they will likely remember a lot of what's happened, we use a lot of trauma-informed care. Um, we try and focus on maintaining their agency, um, doing a lot of expectation setting, empowering them, reassuring them, having ongoing communication. Um, so I think that's something that is an important skill um, in in this um, in this particular type of anesthesia. We all on our team do um, perinatal bereavement training to try and support our, our patients in that way better. So that's a little bit different than what I'm thinking about when I'm doing normal OB or PEDS. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and super, super important to keep in mind. We probably do better to keep that in mind for all of our patients, but certainly what you've said makes a lot yeah. of sense for that patient population. Um, so if you think about maybe let's go through a, a quote unquote routine anesthetic for one of these larger procedures. So a mid gestation, you know, open procedure, um, you mentioned it want needing really good uterine relaxation. So this is going to be a general anesthetic. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Let's let's take for example an an NTD repair, a neural tube defect. So um, for those cases, our our patients after their you know two day evaluation process and all of the preparation, the day of surgery, they show up um, in the pre op area. We'll get a couple of IBs. Um, we'll place an epidural that we'll use for post op pain control. Um, we'll go to the operating room. And actually, we um, will get them all ready for for induction. We'll get them positioned, place an art line, um, and then have once the team is there, they're prepped and draped and everything. Then we'll we'll have the the patient go off to sleep and start the surgery. That'll be a general anesthetic because our center does them fetoscopically. Some places do it open. It doesn't require quite as much um, uterine relaxation. Um, so that'll be you know if you're using SIVO, maybe we're going to like 
1.1, 1.2 MAC while they're actively working on the uterus, putting ports in. Um, and then once the ports are in, there's not as much direct stimulation um, to the uterus. We can back off on that a little bit. So you can go down to, you know, maybe 0 0.8, 0 0.9 MAC. Um, you've got magnesium to help relax the uterus as well. The, the patient will have gotten indocin to help relax the uterus. So there's all these different um, tocolytics that we're using to relax the uterus. And then once they get ready um, to start on the fetus, they'll do um, administer the, the fetal anesthesia. Um, the way we do that here is kind of a, a medium dose and then we'll redose it if the case um, is extended. So the dose will be based on the fetal weight and then the time of the procedure. And then as they finish that, they will, will bring that um, anesthetic level back up so that the uterus is relaxed again, um, get that uterus um, back into the abdomen, close the abdomen, activate that epidural, um, and then wake the patient up and follow them the next for a, for a few days. Then the next day we'll do um, take out that epidural and do a tap block. So it's really fun. You get to do lines and epidural and blocks and um, in it's it's kind of all the things that we as anesthesiologists enjoy doing. Very cool. Do you ever have women who are on anticoagulation for another reason and then have need one of these procedures? And I guess my question is, if so, is it possible to do them? You you wouldn't be able to do the epidural part, but would they would they even do the surgery at all or or not? I'm trying to think if that's. It, that that may be one of the few things that hasn't come up yet. Um, all all sorts of things um, will come up. We we tend to use you know a prophylactic um, anticoagulation afterwards, but therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, I'm not sure if they would be eligible for that. Um, I, I kind of doubt it. Yeah, seems hard hard, but yeah. Okay, um, so when you think about these procedures. I mean, when we do, we think about a, a regular anesthetic, I think we all have in mind, you know, things that typically go wrong and what we need to prepare for. But what about for these procedures? You know, there's still all the normal stuff. Mom could get hypotensive, mom could get bradycardia, you know, et cetera. But what about, you know, what is unique in these procedures that you think, you know, okay, this, when something goes wrong, this might go wrong. And then how do you prepare for it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will, I will set aside all the things that we normally think about um, for, for, for our other patients who are either pregnant or, or neonates. In these cases, you know, we're thinking about having two or, or more, if there's triplets or, um, or more distinct patients, but it's actually not so black and white, right? They're not that distinct because if something goes wrong with mom, it will impact the baby and vice versa. If something goes wrong with the fetus, it might lead to an unexpected delivery for the mom, um, or it might just lead to, you know, stress, emotional stress if she's experiencing that resuscitation. So we're we're always thinking about how one will impact the other. That again is is not that different from regular OB, but what is different is the tools that we have to do resuscitation. So when you think about a fetal resuscitation, what does that look like? Um, if you're on labor and delivery and you have a fetal bradycardia, it means you're going to deliver. But for us, we've got a lot of tools because we can give the the fetus medications. We can actually do CPR on the fetus as well. Um, so, for example, in a cardiac procedure where we are sticking a needle into the heart, you, as you can imagine, might get a pericardial effusion. So we the, the surgeons might do a pericardiocentesis, um, so that can be part of the resuscitation on the fetus. Um, you may end up giving medications um, to the fetus that are resuscitative, either epi, but it might, you know, become digoxin or it might might be, uh, you know, an antiarrhythmic, depending on what you see. 
the, the trick when that happens is you don't have an EKG. So you're just kind of using the echo to try and figure out what you have, but we, we, we've done it. Um, and then if you, if you need to CPR, which we do with an ultrasound so that you can actually see the fetal heart and make sure that the compressions are being delivered in the right spot. And I'll tell you every time we do that, I think this is, oh man, but it works. It's, it, it's CPR in, in a fetus. It, it does work. Wow. That's amazing. And I never would have thought of that, but it is very right. The bradycardia is different when you can actually treat it directly as opposed to only having access to mom. Very interesting. So, you know, this is fascinating, but also really stressful stuff. So, you know, when you're thinking about this and, and the fact that you come to work every day, well, actually, let me back up. I, I don't think we talked about you. You said up front how your kind of goal when you decided to do, you know, the two fellowships was to maybe have, you know, some breakdown 60, 40 or whatever, or 50, 50 of your time. What is your time breakdown now? How much fetal surgery do you do versus regular OB anesthesia versus pediatric anesthesia? So I almost exclusively do fetal um, now. So our our center is is quite busy, um, but also as I mentioned, we're really involved in a lot of the planning and discussion and consultations. We spend a lot of time with these patients before, during, and after these cases. And so almost always, um, most of my cases are are doing um, fetal surgery. When I'm not doing that, um, sometimes I'm in the the pediatrics um, OR doing just you know general pediatric anesthesia. That's less and less because. Because when I'm assigned there, I often will get pulled over for one of those two-person cases um, for for fetal. And then every once in a while, I might do a particular um, case in a pregnant patient who needs um, a a surgery uh, for non-obstetric reasons. Uh, But most of my time is spent um, doing fetal at this point. And what keeps you doing it? You know, I mean, I know that's silly. You obviously love it. But I mean, tell our audience, you know, what is it that keeps you coming back and doing this often stressful work every day? You know, it's, um, it is stressful, (laughs) but I, I think it's the patients and it's my team. And, and the, from the clinical standpoint, it's so fulfilling to be able to take care of these patients. And it's nice. It's kind of unique in anesthesia to get to know your patients that well, and to spend, you know, an hour with them to talk to them, just what this is going to be like, and, and then spend the entire time of their perioperative care and, and see them every day while you're managing them um, after the surgery, before they go home. You know, these patients will, will text us their baby photos, you know, several months later when, when they have their baby. So that's really, really um, fulfilling to, and it feels like such a, a privilege to be there in this really, really stressful time. Um, I think that's what drives a lot of us to anesthesia, right? To take something that's a, such a vulnerable, stressful time for a patient and, and you're not, you're not making it good, but you're hopefully making it a little bit more tolerable. Um, so that's really, really fulfilling, um, I think that's the biggest thing. We also get to do a lot of fun stuff, right? Like neuraxial and blocks and and lines. So so that's really, you know, we all went to anesthesia because we like doing that. So that's that's very fun. Um, but I cannot imagine doing this without my team. And my team, I mean my my team, my maternal fetal anesthesia team, the people who who I do this with on the anesthesia side, they're my, they're my family. I I adore them. I trust them. I love working with them. We have kind of a choreography of how we do this together. It's it's really, really fun and, and satisfying. And I learn from them all the time. Um, and then the bigger fetal team, the surgeons, the the nurse coordinators, the scrub techs, it's it's a it's a unique setting in this giant, we're the biggest children's hospital in the country, but this group works together 
um, so regularly that we're like brothers and sisters. We're, we're, you know, um, talk to each other. We laugh together. We take care of each other when we have a bad outcome. Um, and, and there's so much trust. We trust each other, which I think is hard to come by when you're working with a different person every day. Um, but because we spend so much time together, it's, I, I trust them, which I really need. Um, and, and I feel that I am trusted by them. So, so that's really fulfilling. That's fabulous. When you think about the future of fetal surgery and fetal anesthesia, does anything come to mind? Anything you think of this is, you know, we don't have it yet, but 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, you think we will anything on the horizon? Oh, yeah. We're, we're like, this is the frontier, right? So right. I think there's going to be, we're going to, we're going to move towards less invasive stuff, I think, um, because if we are doing things fetoscopically, that decreases the risk for the mom, not just for that pregnancy, um, but for future pregnancies. So I think things will be moving to be less invasive. Um, but also there's going to be new indications, right? So we're, we're working on things like we've, we've, we're doing a gastroschisis trial here where, um, you know, people are looking at vein of Galen malformation as a, a fetal intervention. So there's new indications the indications are expanding beyond just um mortality but morbidity reducing um interventions for the fetus and doing it at less less risk so i think there will be big centers that are doing these surgeries um for these new indications in a, in a less invasive manner and i think there's also going to be newer centers more and more fetal centers um and it all is a reflection of our ability to diagnose these things using the imaging capabilities that we have, right? If you think of, you know, when, when we were um, fetuses, you could, you could hardly tell if it was a, 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 you know, the sex of the baby, but now we can do a fetal MRI. So as, as our ability to diagnose um, improves, our indications will expand. Very cool. Well, it will be exciting to see what the future holds. And as you say, this is, you know, uh, will we see a, a new revolutionary anesthetic for adult anesthesia? I don't know. Probably not. But in fetal surgery, we may really see just fabulous new frontiers. And so that's really exciting. We've covered a lot of wonderful stuff, Caitlin. Is there anything that you think we didn't touch on that you would like to touch on before we move on? You know, I think um, I I want to encourage any trainees who are interested in this um, or who are interested in anything um, to really pursue what they're interested in and what they're excited about. Um if it's OB and PEDS and, you know, that may not make sense to everybody to put those two things together. Still, you can, you can find a way to combine the things that you like, if you like more than one thing. Um, and I think it's important to remember that when people give you advice, while it may be well-intentioned, it may not encompass all of the things that you are, that you find meaningful. Um, when, when I was considering doing both of these fellowships, so many people said that doesn't make any sense. And maybe it didn't. Um, but it was, it was really hard for me as a trainee to, to, um, absorb that. It made me really doubt myself a lot. Um, and so for residents who are experiencing that, I, I say, go for it, you know, pursue what you love doing. And that's, that's how we find happiness. Um, so I think if, if there are people who are interested in fetal or in OB or peds or a different combination, you know, OB critical care or, um, whatever combination you like, I think, um, think big and, and, and try pursuing the things that you love. 
That's great advice. And, you know, I would add, I, I thought very seriously actually about doing an OB fellowship in addition to my critical care fellowship. And I had already been at another career first. I was old, so I, I didn't do it partly because I thought I just don't want to do another year of training, but I would encourage people to not listen to that voice. You know, I think that in the, in the big scheme of your long career, you're not going to regret doing one extra year of training if it would give you, you know, something you're excited about. So I would say pursue it and, and you'll be happy 40 years later when you're still practicing that thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, fabulous. Let's go to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Caitlin, do you have something you'd recommend that the audience check out? So this is this is such a tough question because I am an enthusiastic person. So I'm enthusiastic about a lot of things. Um, but I don't actually know if you can see in, in my office. I think I think everyone should find what is therapy for them, right? And so for me, in addition to actual therapy, which is another recommendation. I think we should all be doing that if we're doing a life and death kind of job like this. Um, finding what is what is therapeutic and calming for you. Um, so I recommend the Legos for adults. They make Lego flowers. Um, they make Lego paintings and you can just sit and do that thing and you can't pick up your phone and you can't, you know, be interrupted by other things. And it's it's just kind of a Zen uh, thing to do. So if you're a person who likes puzzles or, you know, something like that, the the Legos for adults, I cannot recommend enough. Go go order that for for your um, friends for their, I guess, you know, holidays, whatever is coming. Legos for adults is is my recommendation. I didn't even know that existed. How cool. And is that what looks like a plant to me in the background? Is that a Lego? That's, um, that one is an actual, here, let's see. That's, here's a Lego, a Lego flower. Wow. No, wouldn't have guessed that from, <laughs> at least from a distance, I would have thought that was real. How cool. Awesome recommendation. Um, so I am going to recommend a book series that actually one of our applicants to our program this year recommended to me, and I was ready for a new book, and I do enjoy science fiction. And so this is called The Expanse Series by James Corey, I believe is the author. And uh, it's a long because there's seven books, but if you like science fiction, it's really well done and really interesting, and I highly recommend checking it out. I believe the first book of the series is called Leviathan Wakes. I think that's right. And uh, it's it's great. I'm about having about I think I'm on book three or four of seven. And so far, it's still got me gripped. So if you like science fiction, check out the Expanse series. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter. And we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. 
Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.